1: Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. Just a few things before we get in today's episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, we love getting the word out and trying to get new listeners. This week, we're excited. We briefly cracked the top 20 business podcasts on iTunes and also the top five investing podcasts on iTunes. And so we're, we're happy that the podcast is starting to get around and, and, and help people with investing and strategies and, and those sort of things. Also, if you'd like to, we appreciate it if you subscribe to our emails. We're going to start sending out emails and, and give some millionaire analysis of some of the people we've interviewed. We've emailed over you know, 40, 50 millionaires now, uh, interviews completed, and so we're starting to analyze some of the data we've collected from that and trying to, to get some valuable information. So thanks again for listening, and we definitely appreciate it. So on today's show, we have Chris. And he's an engineer with a net worth of 1.3 million. He's pretty heavily invested in the markets, with 900,000 in traditional uh, 401k and IRAs, and he also has 200,000 in home equity. We talk with him about when he hit his millionaire status, how it felt to become a millionaire, and what expenses were worth it along the way. He talks also about his SEP 72T retirement strategy, something that's unique, you know, to to our show as far as that we haven't discussed it before. He talks about his desire to travel and his family's, you know, enjoyment of traveling and talks about some of the places he's been on. And we also try something new with him this episode. We try some rapid fire questions. And so we, we quickly ask him some of the, you know, some of the expenses he's had, the most expensive jeans he's bought, the most expensive car, the most expensive meal he's paid for, his GPA, some of these other fun things, and and it was neat to experience that with the hymn. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Chris.
2: Welcome to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got Chris. Chris, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and
0: what you're up to now? Sure. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, I'm 46 years old, and I've been married for about 24 years. Um, I have three kids. Two of them are in college, and one is uh, pretty close to getting in to uh, school within two years here. My background is mechanical engineering. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in mechanical engineering. Uh, So I'm essentially a a W-2 worker, if you will, and have been, um, since coming out of college, work for um, a global 500 company that is in the healthcare industry, mostly geared toward capital medical equipment and I've been uh, effectively with the same company for about 22 years, although that includes a, a spinoff and, a, and an acquisition along the way.
2: Awesome, and what is your net worth currently today? It's about 1.3. And how is that broken up?
0: Yeah, it's it's broken up uh, pretty heavily leaning toward the 401k and traditional IRAs, so maybe just to mention up front, um, my, my mindset pretty early on when I got out of school was to try to max out that 401k every year. And, um, you know, at the time my, my thought process was I can retire early and early to me at the time was, you know, essentially 59 and a half. But um, so by by taking that approach, I'm now uh, about 900,000 in split between traditional IRAs and 401k. So the, the trad IRAs are... Um, Essentially, rollovers from from the previous uh, companies. Um, although I said effectively, it's the same company. You know, with with the transitions that involved rolling over my uh, previous four hundred one ks. I got about seventy thousand in Roths between the the Roth. Both my wife and I have the Roth account. We've really only been maxing it, that out for the last few years. Um, so that that's on the lower side, but we are now focused on maxing that out for both of us each year. Have about eighty thousand in private uh, brokerage accounts, um, you know, post-tax brokerage accounts. Um, I, I tend to keep um, roughly ten to twenty thousand, let's say, in between savings and in really easy access money market accounts as our emergency fund. We also have about Right now, about a hundred thousand earmarked for college expenses. Um, so I I hesitate actually whether to, to include that or not because it's sort of so spoken for. But I guess you know if it's not spent, it's still there. <laughs> and then um, small amount in uh, an HSA account. Um, I I think right now in in the low tens. And um, then we we have about. I'm estimating about 200,000 in home equity. We still have a mortgage. Uh, we have about 70,000 to pay off on the mortgage over the next um, five to seven years. And then uh, also to mention, I am grandfathered into a um, traditional pension plan, although they they stopped funding it several years ago. So doing the doing the calculations on that, if I um, were to. Take a lump sum in, let's say, the next five years. If if that my plan to retire is in that range, uh, it would be roughly the hundred to one hundred fifty thousand. Um, just to give a, an idea of how much that represents.
2: Good stuff. And and how have you invested those retirement accounts? In terms of have they been mutual funds? Have they been uh, index
0: funds? It's almost entirely index funds, um, where I can, I do, uh, Vanguard and, and VTS AX in particular. Uh, I'm able to do that in the private accounts and in the Roth accounts, my, um, and also the rollover IRAs. Uh, I have all that with Vanguard. And then, um, uh, with the 401k, I, I also have my current 401k through Vanguard, although I can't, uh, directly do VTSAX. Uh, there is a, the, the Vanguard fund that is the S&P 500 tracker. Um, and so I, I blend that with uh, a few other funds that are available in my 401k to try to get as close as possible to representing the whole market. Although, you know, that, that can be a challenge, but uh, I do my best to try to do that. So, yeah, really in the um, what you would call retirement funds, really focus nearly 100% in um, stock uh, index funds,
1: and then are you invested in any international <clears throat> funds?
0: I do keep a small percent in international, and I would say it's generally less than five percent. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an advocate of uh, the, the JL Collins approach, which you guys have probably heard of and are familiar with, uh, um, in terms of being geared toward VTSAX. Um, although I just almost for you know a little bit of uh sandbox put put a little bit in into international just to just to sort of see how it runs over time
1: sure sure, to diversify a little yeah. do you know what your return's been over
0: time well you know i haven't i haven't calculated uh, uh you know sort of equivalent annual return so i I'd, I'd hate to speculate but um you know it's it's probably pretty close to whatever the market has been over 22 years.
1: Sure. So, how did this? <clears> how did your investing start? Is that something you learned from your parents? Something you picked up on your own? You know, talk a little bit about that background.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting because I I've sort of contemplated that, uh, you know, in, in thinking about talking with you guys, and I I don't in my in my mind as I think back, I don't really have a a, a clear answer or a clear uh, memory of sort of what what drove me to, for example, think about maxing out the four hundred and one k's. My my dad definitely um, was very conscientious about teaching us about finance and about the fact that he was saving for retirement and the fact that um, he put a considerable amount of what he made into that, you know, into that um, process. So. I think a little bit of that rubbed off on me, although it it wasn't necessarily something that he, you know, hammered into us or harped on too often, but I I think he just talked about it and and showed it often enough to, um, to have a lot of it rub off. And then my, also, um, I have two older brothers and my oldest brother is uh, in finance as well. And so he's six years older than I am. And, and I also think just from, um, Talking with him and, and understanding what his process was in terms of uh, approaching investing, um, I think some of that also carried over. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, other than, other than that, it's just I've always been fairly um, investment minded or fairly savings minded in terms of not just, you know, blowing the bank and spending the whole paycheck, but really, really have tried to focus on keeping a little bit of every dollar that I earn.
1: Yeah. And how old were how old were you when you hit millionaire status? Do you remember?
0: Yeah, it was last year. Uh about uh actually about this time last year, so probably just over a year ago. And uh, of course the the nice uh the nice returns up through January just helped to to propel that uh, even more.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then besides the 70k mortgage or the 70k remaining on your mortgage, did, did do you have any other debt or just that or just that?
0: We do have a little bit of remaining debt on one vehicle um, that we are uh, on on track to pay off by the end of this year. And aside from that, we carry no debt. So we've in 20 plus years of marriage, uh, I think literally two or three um, credit card bills have not been paid in full every single month. And, you know, just from... Cash flow perspective on a couple of occasions. Like we had to have the roof replaced at one point and uh, you know, we're just a little bit strapped there for, for a month and, and um, let a little bit uh, carry over to the next month, but essentially for all those years have not carried credit card debt. And um, we've, we've tended to carry some uh, vehicle loan debt, although I, I'm definitely, you know, at this point, focusing on, uh, minimizing that and trying in the future if we, uh, if, if, and when obviously it's going to be a, when we need new vehicles to, um, to, to not finance, but to, to pay in full upfront.
1: So how did you celebrate becoming a millionaire? Did you do something? Did you buy something? Did you have that goal initially or, or did it just kind of happen and, and life kept going?
0: It totally happened and life kept going. It was, um, you know, I think I think the way I celebrated was I um, <clears throat> tapped my wife on the shoulder who was sitting on the couch and I was looking at the uh, um, the net worth uh, uh, summary from all the accounts and uh, showed her the number and said, hey, <laughs> this is an extra digit all of a sudden. And so we, we just kind of giggled, giggled about it and said, job well done and kind of went on from there. So yeah, n- nothing really special, but uh, it certainly felt nice to Be at that point in time and know that that was a a long, a long time coming and and took a lot of patience and and really just turning the crank and saving and doing it over and over again to get there. So, yeah, not not uh, not having a big celebration and spending money when that'll just take me right back under a million. Right. So. (laughs)
1: yeah you don't want to buy something too big it takes you the other direction but then you'd have another chance to celebrate it right yeah that's right (laughs) so first of all i mean congratulations that's that's awesome and a a tremendous milestone is is there anything big that you purchased along the way that was worth it or is there is there you know did you make any big purchases that you wish you wouldn't have whether that's you know cars or vacations or you know something of that sort
0: yeah um we we do really enjoy traveling, and we've taken a couple nice vacations uh, internationally with um, with the family. And when you're traveling with five people, that obviously that can get expensive. So um, that's something that we've done. You know, tried to sort of measure out and do, um, you know, not not go hog wild and not spend the money we don't have. But again, making sure that we've saved up a little extra and we can pay for that up front, and we're not carrying that debt forward. Um but we we've gotten so much out of that that I, I completely look back at that and uh take a total positive attitude toward those trips which are pretty expensive when you're for example flying flying five people to Europe and spending two weeks and uh you know traveling around. Um that that price tag adds up, but it was absolutely worth it for the experience and uh for for my wife and I, and being able to share that with our kids. So totally, totally would do that again. uh, And we'll do that again as, as we can. Um, I, I do, I do like nice cars. (laughs) So uh, I could look back and I could uh, say, you know, buying, buying a nicer car, maybe, maybe is a thing that um, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not going to kick myself for it because I've also gotten a lot of enjoyment out of driving. And, you know, when you have a, uh, when you're in the car for an hour a day driving to work, it's, it's also nice to have something nice that you can depend on that, that drives well, that um, you can have a little bit of fun with too. So um, probably as time marches on, I'll be, I'll be a little less um, extravagant with the vehicles and uh, that'll also help with the, not financing, but uh, but paying up front as well. It, but I, I think nothing. There's nothing that I would look back and say, "Well, that was a, a major mistake or a catastrophe or, wow, why did why did we spend all that money on that?" But naturally, there are, we we generate uh, you know with toys and kids and and all that. We we generate stuff that you look back and you you have suddenly have a pile of of toys or whatever that you're giving away to to goodwill and whatnot. And um, you know, there, that I think at some point you can question some of those things. Maybe maybe you could have been a little bit smarter about some of those purchases. But then then again, I think all those added up um don't don't really to me don't don't matter that much in the equation. Um and and really like I said, there's nothing that I look back at and say that was just a you know terrible mistake or that really was something that, that knocked us off the course that we're trying to be on in terms of, uh, early retirement. Um, the, the one thing that, that I did definitely did want to mention is, uh, I know there's a lot of discussion out there in, in the blog world and on a lot of podcasts about home ownership and buying versus renting. Uh, I, I know for us owning a home, living in a home, uh, you know, technically still have a mortgage on it, so maybe shouldn't even say owning it, but living in the home and, and uh, we, we've been in the same home for quite a while, uh, over 20 years. And um, we live in a fairly low cost of living area, but still not too far from a major city. And uh, it's just, it's been, again, for, for our family, for our needs, for our purpose, that has been uh, something that I would, I would, do all over again, absolutely in a heartbeat, and don't question that decision of owning versus buying for our situation. And of course, that can be t- totally different for people in in different uh, geographic situations and so forth. But that's one thing that obviously is a big expense in our lives, but is absolutely worth uh, the sort of freedom and the space that we have with our yard and and within the house, some Room to move around with five people, not um, climbing all over each other. So definitely <laughs> uh, have enjoyed that, and and am glad for that decision.
2: Let's let's go back to the vacations a little bit. Where have been some of the favorite places that you've taken your family?
0: I love Germany, um, in in the sort of southern Germany austria switzerland area uh in particular is a a place that we've gone to a couple of times um we we've also spent some time in mexico we've spent some time i mean these aren't international places but uh that i'm going to mention next but we've we've been to many many places within the u.s and enjoyed traveling within the u.s as well so you know it doesn't have to be like we need to uh you know show our passport at a at a um, customs office to to enjoy ourselves. Uh, we spent a lot of time in California and along the West Coast. We spent uh, a lot of time in in the middle of the country in a number of different states and in national parks and so forth. And uh, uh, some time down south. and And uh, we live up in the Northeast, so we've also done a lot of local traveling up here to to the various um, areas where we have. Oceans and mountains and and lakes and uh, a lot of wilderness and so forth, um, pretty much right in our back door. So, a lot of opportunity to to travel to all those different places. Um, sort of sort of on our bucket list uh, is Italy. So that's one uh, one place in Europe that we want to get back to that we haven't been to yet. Um, I've also done some some other traveling from work in Europe and in uh, in the Far East and China and Japan. So. Gotten around a little bit. Uh, we'll enjoy getting around more as time goes on.
2: What does it typically cost you to take your family on a trip? Maybe to Europe or maybe across the United States. What do you usually end up spending on that kind of thing?
0: Uh, I can talk about. Uh, or most most recently, uh, when the all five of us went to Europe. This is going back now. Um, I think three or four years and at the time our tickets were on the order of uh $1000 a person uh that that can vary and that can uh that's obviously that can be the the biggest knob or the biggest driver in terms of um in terms of what you're spending and that's for in our case obviously multiplied by 5 that's um, that's a big knob so we you know on one hand you know, try Try to look for times that are going to be cheaper. But on the other hand, with uh, at the time with kids in school age and so forth, you're very limited, obviously, by, um, by their vacation schedule. And you tend to be in the summer, and that tends to be not necessarily a cheap time to travel um, anywhere, let alone Europe necessarily. So uh, prob- probably on the order, say-, so say on the order of uh, a grand, um, a person for the tickets, so you're at five right there. And uh, next most expensive typically is the place to stay. Um, last time we went out there, we found an Airbnb. We stayed in the same apartment for almost the entire trip, and um, and and just basically did day trips with the train um, or the, the you know the local uh, transit system to get pretty much as far as you could go in a day and do something and make the trip back. But again, being, uh, we were staying in Southern Germany and being close to the Alps and close to a lot of the lakes and so forth. Um, not, not sure if you're you know familiar with the area, but there's just tremendous nature and um, also uh, a, lot, a lot of things to do in some of the different um, cities in the area. Munich is a, a lovely city. Uh, we also really like Salzburg and Austria and, um, so we, we tried to save some money by doing that. And that worked out really well in that case. Um, you know, we were a little bit limited in terms of the distance we were able to travel on that trip, but, uh, there was plenty to fill two weeks of vacation, like without no brainer, without trying, fill filled the two weeks and could have filled more time just being in that, uh, fairly small region. Um, so, I, I don't remember exact numbers, but I'm, I'm thinking that the um, place we stayed in for roughly two weeks was on the order of uh, two grand, let's say. Um, and then food, we, we do enjoy eating out, but we also try to mix in having either a breakfast uh, in from the kitchen at the place we're staying or um, packing a sandwich lunch or something like that to save on at least one or maybe two meals a day. And then maybe you know be able to focus a little bit more on having one nice meal out somewhere uh, while traveling. Um, so I, th- I you know and then you have you have your other little expenses like the if you're visiting a, a place that costs an entry fee and so on and so forth that those things do add up a little bit but they they tend to be at the tail end for sure but I think on that trip um, overall we we spent close to 10 although not i don't think we exceeded 10 on that particular trip Uh, that gives you an idea obviously you can you can go hog wild and you can buy every meal out and you can stay in a you know maybe a four-star hotel or whatever you might think of but um uh trying to trying to keep it trying to balance the having the five people traveling um with with the experience uh I i don't you know, feel like we need to necessarily spend money on really expensive stuff per se. There's obviously to get there, you need to buy a plane ticket to to be there. Unless you happen to have family or know someone in the area, you 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 got to stay somewhere, and um, that there's going to be depending where you are in the world, there's going to be a certain cost associated with that, and and then all the other stuff is sort of what do you have to pile on top of that to to have a good time? And for us, we don't necessarily need to to do really expensive things per se to enjoy we in fact like walking around the city or going on a hike somewhere or um you know walking around the tallest mountain in germany for an hour or two and just looking around at the alps around you and and just being you know it's breathtaking experience so it's it's not that that portion of the journey is not that expensive it's just a little bit on top of of what you've already uh, paid for to get out there so
2: Good stuff. So just a little 10 grand or so. One thing that you've shared with us is that sh- as part of your early retirement plan is you are marching towards an SEPP 72 t strategy. Do you want to just kind of dig into a little bit about what you were doing to kind of make that work for you, especially since you're kind of planning to retire in your early 50s?
0: Sure, I can I can talk about uh SEPP um, probably dig in into as much areas as, as we want to or need to here, and I could talk for a lot longer than, than we probably want to talk in this session. So, um, I'll 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 start going down one road, and if you you know if you guys want to go one direction or another, just um, let me know as we're talking through it. Uh, but for maybe for people who aren't uh, familiar with the terminology, SEPP stands for substantially equal periodic payment. And there's a rule in the the IRS code, uh, which is under the the subtitle of the number the the paragraph number 72, uh, section T. So it's called often called the 72T. And actually, there's there there's other like it's it's actually 72T2A4. If you if you really want to know where it is in the code, so you need to drill down into this code. But that that Specific line of the code says that normally, if you want to withdraw from a tax-deferred account like a four hundred one k or traditional IRA um, or or similar uh, accounts, that that you need to be you either need to be have reached fifty nine and a half years of age, or if you want to withdraw that money before fifty nine and a half, you need to pay a ten percent penalty. So, if you withdraw ten thousand dollars, you would need to pay an extra $1,000 in penalty um, or or tax in addition to whatever normal tax you would then owe on that money when you take it out. However, the the clause, the SEPP clause says that you can withdraw that money before you're 59 and a half without that 10% penalty, as long as you follow some rules. Um, the, The downside in a way is that the rules are certainly at first glance, they're not easy. Um, I, I feel like they're not easy on purpose, because, you know, the whole idea, the whole sort of agreement with putting money into your tax deferred accounts is that you are going to wait until you're 59 and a half. So I think even the fact that there's a clause in there that allows essentially anyone to access that money early is is a really great thing. Um, but But they've made it so that, you know, you don't just have to Check a box and say, well, hey, I decided to take it out early and then you're home free. You know, you need to follow some very specific rules to um, to make that happen. So <clears throat> the one of the one of the key rules there is that you need to stick with that SEPP plan for a minimum of five years. Um or, or up until you reach 59 and a half, whichever of those is longer. So if you start at 50 you you would need to go you know let's say for sake of argument 10 years although you know it'll depend on when your birthday is and when you actually turn 59 and a half, exactly how how many of those payments you you need to follow with the the scpp um, but it's it's five it's at least five or up until you're 59 and a half, whichever is longer um and there's a number there's there actually there's exactly three different methodologies that you can use to choose from to figure out, to calculate exactly what that amount is that you, w- you can withdraw. So the idea is that the reason it's called substantially equal periodic payments is that every year, let's say, you need to withdraw, depending on the method, either the exact same amount in nominal dollars, the exact same amount every year for that sequence Or with one of the methods, it's a uh, situation where you need to make a withdrawal every year, but you recalculate what the amount will be, and all of these calculations are based on um, first of all the amount of money that you have in your account. So you can play around with that a little bit by doing, you know, you can you can roll IRAs together, or you can roll you can separate them in different accounts. So you you do have a little bit of of um, ability to dial in the amount of the account that you actually want to use for your for your 72t um, so that's one lever another another factor is your life expectancy um, and here where again where it starts off being kind of complicated there are three different life expectancy tables that you can choose from however it, in it in the analysis it kind of makes sense to just, settle on one that that would give you the maximum payout and then vary your your um account balance to as the lever to to decide how much you exactly want to take out and then with some of the methods you also have to choose an interest rate um the interest rate is uh what what is called the 120% midterm interest rate and that's a that's just a number that's defined by the IRS every month they update that number and um and and if you choose one of the methods that requires you to choose an interest rate, the idea is that you can choose any interest rate up to that number. You can't choose a higher interest rate, and the 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 effect of a higher interest rate means you'll be able to take out more money if that's what you want to do. So uh, if if the if the actual rates at the time you're starting your SEP are Higher, then you'll have more flexibility in the maximum amount you that you can take out. Um, so, I, I, one one of the things that I definitely want to mention is that um, the the way I view SEPP is definitely it's not because of some of these limitations and some of the s- specific ways you need to do the calculations. It's not really flexible I mean or it's really not flexible maybe is a better way of saying it in that you you choose a method and you do the calculation and you end up with a number and you have some you have some initial flexibility over getting that number in in the ballpark of where you want to be in terms of the withdrawal you want to make but then you're locked into that method and in in most cases you're essentially you're locked into that number so the way i'm approaching it is to try to set that level at an amount that is going to represent let's say 3 quarters or perhaps up to 80% of what i expect to withdraw on an annual basis and then my my plan is to have that as a baseline of income after the after retirement and then to get up to you know, whatever the the actual level that I expect to um, be needing every year for fitting my budget is going to be covered then by Roth money or by the uh, brokerage money that I have in addition. So SEP is, is not flexible enough for you to fix it to the exact amount that you want to take out every year. Uh, so that's the reason I, I say I want to get that up to a certain level, and then I want to kind of build on top of that with the money that I have a little bit of more flexibility over in terms of accessing um, earlier without potential penalty.
1: And um, and what amount <clears throat> what amount do you think you'll be spending every year? What amount do you anticipate needing?
0: Right now, um, what what I'm calculating so in, in today's dollars is um, we're we're thinking that we're going to need to budget around fifty five thousand. And so that's the, that would be the total amount that we're planning to budget as an annual, uh, as an annual budget after retirement. And, and, and again, in, so making the calculations in today's dollars. So in, in roughly five years, which is uh, my, my plan for um, early retirement at this point, roughly five years, obviously that, that will be more nominal dollars at that time. But just keeping it in the discussion about today's dollars, 55000
1: so I want to try something new. We had some listener feedback that that uh, about a couple of new ideas we're going to be on the sh- or for the show. So I want to ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, about eight rapid fire questions here, um, and just you know, I want to hear your your answers on on some of these easier questions and just the first thing that comes to you. Are You good with that?
0: Sure. Let's try it.
1: All right. What's the most you've ever spent on a car?
0: Thirty-seven thousand.
1: Okay. Most expensive pair of jeans?
0: Oh, I don't know. Probably 30 bucks.
1: Most expensive meal? Uh,
0: That I paid for myself.
1: That you paid for, yeah.
0: For my whole family, $200.
1: Okay. What items to you are worth spending more money on? Good food, good wine. Okay. And what about not spending money on? Or where are you cheap? Maybe that's a better question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. May- can I go back to that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. what are, what's, been your, or what's your high school and college GPA?
0: Uh, high school, I don't know. College,
1: 3.9. Okay. And predicted retirement age, I think you said what 51. Is that what you said in five yes. years? Yes. And how much did you make your first job out of college?
0: 50000
1: $50,000. Awesome. Do your friends know you're a millionaire now?
0: Uh, a couple of them do.
1: And do they treat you differently or, or not no, so much?
0: No, not at all.
1: So what advice do you give to somebody who's just starting off that, you know, someone that's trying to retire a millionaire to, to grow their income, to invest? What advice do you give and or maybe what mistakes have you made that they can avoid along the way?
0: Again, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I have... Uh, just a crazy big mistake that I would, you know, that I have a story around that I'd point out, but probably my biggest mistake at, uh, even though, like I said, I have really had the mindset to keep that 401k maxed out every year. And I've definitely had a, a saving mindset from that point of view. But also I think there was a little bit of a limiting belief around having that target that is, is totally arbitrary that 59 and a half age target to say, Hey, I think that's retiring early. Uh, and obviously, when I started in this, there there was not a lot of discussion or or stuff out there around um, even really the concept of early retirement or FI and the way that it's out there now and the way it's growing. Um, but but I think I, even even without that sort of external uh, impetus, I I feel like I could have thought more broadly earlier uh, like we've really honed in on this more recently and and gotten much more intentional about the extra savings and the focus on the savings rate and um and if i had done that earlier would probably be in, in, in an even better position now um, again i i i think i'm in a pretty good position i don't think i'm in a bad position and, and i i don't beat myself up over it but um you know, thinking back, if I could, if I could have done that earlier, I, I would be in a better position. And so, I would say to somebody who's thinking about that's important to them to to follow the same sort of tra- trajectory would be to um, not limit yourself. And uh, especially when you're looking at your finances, looking at your budget, um, my suggestion, my my advice for anyone would be build a budget around paying yourself first. And I, I know that's not a new concept at all, but uh, if you can think in terms of the building blocks of where your money is going and at the bottom of that pile, put the stuff that you will, that the, put the stuff on the bottom that will benefit you the most in that goal toward getting to early retirement or getting toward a million dollars or getting toward Um, the financial independence or whatever your perspective is on that, you know, starting with like, I'm going to do my 401k to the employer's match. So I get the most free money that I can. And then maybe the next step is put your 401k in up to the maximum contribution, uh, annual contribution. And, and from there, maybe you're adding in an HSA account. Maybe you're adding in your Roth. Um, Maybe you need to be thinking about college savings, which isn't retirement savings but maybe an important thing to you that you want to consider in that sort of pay yourself first bucket and if you can build those things in first and then you start to add in the okay i need a place to live that's that's a must i I need to eat something so there's some amount in there for a food budget and then you on top of that you start adding in the wants and the nice to haves and and then that that bar is probably going to be higher than the income bar so you need to start taking things out of that but you got to work really hard to take the things out of the areas that are discretionary and the things that are the nice to haves now if they don't bring you that that happiness or that joy and you can you can defer some of that happiness if you will to a later date um, one, one more suggestion that i would have is that people really track their spending ruthlessly for some period of time and maybe that's a month maybe that's a year i don't know how long people have the the, you know the stomach to do that but really be honest with yourself about where the money is going and you'll find money going to places that you don't think about and if you start to think about them you might reconsider that money going in that direction and you might redirect it to going in a different direction that pays off uh, literally pays off more over time
2: Good stuff.
0: Where can people find out about you? I have just recently started a blog that I call My Money Liberty. And uh, as of of the time we're talking here, I only literally have a couple of posts up there. But mymoneyliberty.com is my site and I'll be adding information on there uh, you know there's only a couple posts there now we we did touch on the SCPP I'll be adding <clears throat> some content around that um, if, if I can also mention I started to do some guest posts on the choosefi.com site and my first post on the and those posts are, are geared toward SCPP um, so I'm planning a five part series and the first one is up on their site now and um hopefully here soon we're we're going to start adding uh, the other ones in over a period of time so there'll be a lot of meat on those guest posts there and i'll be adding some additional tools and additional content about scpp and i hope about a lot of other things also on my blog
2: good stuff chris net worth 1.3 million dollars thanks for coming on the show today
0: guys thanks very much for having me appreciate it thanks chris